Hello and welcome. This is Alex and this is the Alex MacPhail podcast, a show all about learning, about celebrating success from the team front. We chat to astronauts and race pilots, entrepreneurs, billionaires, authors, singers, artists, adventurers and more. It's about understanding the team dynamics and making a team work well to achieve great things, learning from failures and setbacks and the endurance required to get through some of these tough events too. Please enjoy it, share it with a friend and remember to subscribe. This conversation with Michelle Curran, you know, it's a, it's a fellow Air Force formation display team pilot. She was with the Thunderbirds of the United States Air Force flying the F-16, which is a beautiful, beautiful aircraft. But she was a wonderful guest and we had a fascinating conversation from all things about the selection process of becoming a, joining the Air Force in the first place, getting into the Thunderbirds, but also towards the end we had an interesting talk about the imposter syndrome and what it's really like and putting a name and a face to something which is seemingly to the public like the Thunderbirds is a uniform. But take that helmet off and there's a real person inside there who also battles with things and she's now taken her message having left the Air Force onto the road and she now is involved with motivational speaking, particularly fond of uh, you know children and high schoolers and people that can really learn and, and find the value in the, her career. And there's a lot of value that you can get in this conversation too. I hope you enjoy it. Michelle Mace-Curran, former United States Air Force Thunderbirds display pilot and just a wonderful chat. Michelle, it's amazing to connect with you after our hiccups of the last uh, connection. I'm pleased to see you. How are you doing today? Good. I'm super excited to chat. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, okay. Well, as, as I mentioned in the sort of preamble build-up, this is uh, just going to be a fun conversation. It's been a while since I've flown in formation aerobatics with the South African Air Force, but not so long ago for you. Uh, you've recently transitioned out of the military. How long ago? When was your last public, or when was the last time you flew that F-16 in formation with the number five? Yeah, so it was what we call my finny flight, which you have every time you leave a squadron, but this was not only my finny flight to leave the Thunderbirds, but also leaving active duty. So that was my last flight in the F-16. So it was a pretty big deal, um, you know, after flying it for about 11 years, and it was the first week of December, so just a few months ago. Okay, so I mean, you, you I mean, it's been... What is it now? I think I'm 13 years out of the game, but uh, I feel like I could jump in, strap in, and I could probably hang in there, even though I probably can't. I still feel like I can hang in there, but for you, it was like yesterday. You could jump in and uh, ready for the break, break, go, and you're in the zone. Huh? Does it still feel real like it was the other day? Uh, yeah, I think so. I noticed when I was on the team that even if we wouldn't fly for a week or two when we had our few breaks throughout the year, you would feel like your brain was slow when you came back. Mm-hmm. Your cross-check yeah. was slow the ground ops were where you would notice the most. You'd be like doing all the switches on the ground and then you'd just be like, wait, what? Because it becomes such habit patterns that you don't even consciously think about it. You just do it. And you would have to like really go through checklists in your mind more intentionally when you hadn't flown for a while. But I think the left hand, right hand of actually flying would come back very fast. It would, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, but but that, that part in your mind that doesn't want to let go, that ego that's driving you saying, I'm still good enough, you know, <laughs> even 10 years later, you're not good enough, but your ego is telling you, I'm sure you're able to polish up with half a sortie. Yeah, sure. You'd be good to go. <laughs> okay, so let's just rewind, uh, let's run back the dials a little bit, Michelle, and we go um, back to that time in your life. I like to just dive in at sort of the, 
the mid-teens, 15, 16 years old, and uh, just understand what you were thinking about in your life and what was it that was kind of attractive to you out there? Were there any role models? You know, were you planning this Air Force career or, or what, was your, what was your thought process on the world and what were you going after? So I get asked a lot or I got asked a lot when I was on the Thunderbirds, like how, how did you get into this line of work? And a lot of people with it being a demo team, imagine that I saw the team as a little kid and was like, that's what I'm going to do. Here we go. Like I'm going to, you know, set my goals and we're going to go after this. So that was not what happened at all. I <laughs> was in high school and about the time you're saying, you know, about halfway through my parents were like, they were awesome. They worked super hard, very blue collar middle class. And they were like, Hey, we don't have a college fund to pay for your education, but I was a straight A student. So they knew that there That's were helpful. scholarship opportunities out there. And they're like, you should start looking into those. Now's the time. And I was always a shy, reserved kid. Like, I avoided being in the spotlight at all costs. Like, don't look at the teacher so that they don't call <laughs> you in class kind of kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I, it's interesting now based on what I ended up doing, but I was definitely not super outgoing. Um, and I started to explore options. And my dad suggested Air Force ROTC, and my initial reaction was, I want to be a normal college kid. I want the full normal college experience. I don't want to be in the military. Like that was my reaction as a, like you said, probably a 16 year old. Um, but I but just, sorry, before you carry on, what does ROTC stand for? So it's the reserve officer training Corps, and there's different ways to become an officer in our military. And okay. we call that different commissioning sources. There's the academies, right? You know, you have the air force Academy, West point, um, the, the Naval Academy, but then there's also ROTC for all the branches, which means you get to go to a four-year university and essentially be a normal college student, but okay. then you're also taking extra classes each week and learning all about the military and you do some physical fitness stuff, you're wearing a uniform, you're marching around, learning all the basics, and a lot of times you get a scholarship that goes along with that, so it's a great way to pay for your education, and then when sure. you are done... I commissioned as a lieutenant into the Air Force the same day I graduated from college. Like one was in the morning, one was in the afternoon. It's a big, big day for me. Wow. Uh, and I was off, off to pilot training in my case. But whatever career field you go into, you have this job waiting for you. And you owe the Air Force four years afterwards uh, for sure. all career fields because they just put all that they just paid for money you. Sure. you. Yeah. Okay, so just want to back up before we jump too far forward. So, so you started exploring ROTC, and uh, and that looked like a viable opportunity. Was that something you initially pushed against, but uh, bought into quickly, or did you have to really get convinced that military? So, I got convinced pretty quickly when I started to explore all the opportunities that there were with it. So, the the small town I grew up in was in northern Wisconsin, about four thousand people, and I wanted to travel. I wanted to see the world. I was, I was a thrill seeker as a kid. I was, I was climbing up trees and jumping off things and riding roller coasters was one of my favorite things to go do. And I just loved that stuff. And so when we started to look at different branches and different options, it was like, ooh, the Air Force has all these really cool things that it does. I didn't necessarily want to be a pilot for sure at that point, but I think the idea of flight appealed to all of those parts of my personality. I just hadn't quite realized that that was what I wanted to do yet. But I think that's what drew me towards the Air Force and eventually to applying for the scholarship. And I got one. And then it was like, oh, they're going to pay for all four years of me to go to college. So here we go. And in those four <laughs> years, I learned a ton about the Air Force and how it worked and the different options. 
and uh, I eventually decided to be a pilot. And we could talk about the pivotal moment. That yeah. Uh, made okay, that but before I, if you want, I do want to talk about that. But before you go to there, so I mean, it's a great point that you highlight too. That the military, I mean, particularly the United States, you're, you're, the military is, is massive and employs so many people. But even in South Africa, the military has so many opportunities. I mean, you could be, I mean, you could be preparing food. You could be looking after uh, police dogs, you know, the, the service dogs and finding weapons. You could be an engineer, an air traffic controller, a nurse, uh, a dentist, a pilot. I mean, there's just so many opportunities. And it's not something that really... Uh, is shared with you unless you knew somebody your neighbor or your parents or someone your cousin was in the military you don't really have that and that really is the point of these display teams and we'll, we'll get to that shortly but it's great that you that you share that message because people listening might think well you obviously had it all figured out and so you applied but no it's okay to not have it figured out and it's okay to explore things and you know if it doesn't work it doesn't work and you and you maybe don't join the RTC or you, you go through it and you don't find the ultimate career you wanted in the military but it's okay to get into that position, not knowing that pilot training is on the other side of that door too. Yeah, there, there are so many options. And like you said, a lot of people don't realize it. And especially if they don't come from a military family, which I didn't, you you just don't know about it until you're already you know, established in another career. And then you're like, oh man, that would have been a good opportunity. I could have <laughs> a lot of really cool stuff. Uh, yeah. So many people come up and tell me like, oh, I wish I would have known about that when I was younger because that would would have been such a great opportunity for me but they just didn't they didn't know they weren't aware yeah okay so tell me about this pivotal moment where you go from being in the air force rotc student doing military studies on the side to deciding i'm going to go and actually become a pilot now so i was a criminal justice major which i do not use at all as a pilot it's <laughs> very unrelated <Okay>. but growing <laughs> up i had wanted to be like an FBI agent or a detective. I was just drawn to those kind of like protector career fields that were exciting, that were challenging. And that's why I wanted to major in criminal justice. And I figured I would probably do something in the Air Force that was related to that. We have OSI, which is like the investigative services um, within our branch. And then we went on a base visit. I think it was sophomore year. And we went down to Florida, and I saw two F-15s taking off with their afterburners lit at dusk. Wow. And that was the first time I had ever seen a fire aircraft fly. I was already in mm. RTC, so obviously I was just not exposed to that. I didn't live near a base. I didn't live near anywhere where there were air shows. And seeing that orange flame coming out the back and having the jet noise like reverberate in your chest, and I was just like, holy crap. I want to do that. And that was it. Where do I sign? I was very, yeah, I was very goal oriented even at a young age. And so once that happened, I was like, this is what I'm going to do. What are the steps? Like, how do you compete for a pilot slot? What do they look at in cadet ranking? And what do I need to do to make mine as good as possible? And it was off to the races. Well, well, let's, yeah, let's. Let's let's call it what it is. I mean, if you and I were to stand now watching two F-15s get airborne and full afterburner, it's still a beautiful thing that doesn't go away. And that's the really great thing about the career and, and sort of the passion of flight is sort of appreciating that beauty doesn't change. I could watch it now and, and have that same feeling today and, and just be glad that I had my time in the Air Force. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's just such a visceral reaction, I think, that I had and that excitement I had experienced that excitement from many other things, so it just stood out as something I should probably pay attention to. Since I was already on my way, I was already in RTC, so 
half the battle had already been yeah. done. I just needed to make up my mind that that's what I wanted to do. Okay. All right. So, I mean, you, uh, in the ROTC program, you had four years at university. You were then required to work back four years, and one of them could have been on pilot's course and then working back, obviously, a little bit more after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. Okay. Exactly. So, so if, go ahead. No, no. So what's the, what's the next steps then? You see these things, and now you've got a goal. Okay, I'm going after it. Do you have to start applying while you're busy studying? I mean, what, what's, the, what's the next process for you? So each cadet wing, each college university that has an ROTC detachment gets a certain number of pilot slots for their graduating seniors each year. And they, so they basically ask, they're like, hey, who here wants a pilot slot? You put your name in, and then they look at your GPA, at your grades, they look at your physical fitness, they look at how you've done in the cadet wing over the last four years, and they rank you. And then they see how many spots the wing gets, and then they just match you. And so some of it is timing because the number varies depending on the needs of the Air Force. Um, but you can definitely do a lot to set yourself up to increase your odds. Obviously. <laughs> of course. And I got one. And from there, it, once I graduated and commissioned, six months later, I was in Columbus, Mississippi, starting pilot training. And I went into Air Force pilot training with zero civilian flight hours. So <laughs> yeah. that was... A steep learning curve to say the least sure okay well I mean that's an exciting phase then to be, to be selected in the first place to just know that you're in this in this bunch of people that's being selected and then you go off to this uh, look it's 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 great to have that exposure and I'm not sure the kind of percentage of people that do the military fly, pilot training course in the United States how much civilian exposure they get normally but it, it's quite common to not have any exposure in this side of the world and uh, I had had been given a birthday flight for 20 minutes in a little Cessna. It was a Cherokee 140 or something really small and slow. And that was about three years before I actually jumped into an aircraft as well. So uh, similar kind of position. Uh, and tell me, what was, so did you say it was in Missouri? What, what was the, the training school? What was the aircraft there? Uh, it was in Mississippi. So it's, sorry, Mississippi. Air Force just has a handful of uh, pilot training bases, like Oklahoma and Texas and Mississippi. And that's the one that I, ended up getting matched to go to. Um, I spent a little bit of time in Colorado going through an initial flight screening program where I flew my first airplane, essentially, and did my first solo that was in the DA-20. And diamond. the program was was tough. Uh, look, it's probably one of the easiest programs in the flight training pipeline when you were line them up, but the fact that I didn't have any time mm. and any mechanical experience, like I had to learn all the aircraft systems, and I didn't grow up working on cars. I didn't understand an oil system. I didn't understand any of that. So it was just so much to learn. That was one of the hardest programs for me personally. Yeah, look, I mean, that also reminds me of a great conversation with uh, Glenn Gonzalez, uh, who was also in the Air Force, F-15s. And and he, he equates that sort of initial pilot training in Air Force as learning a whole new language. But you're not only learning a whole new language, you have to learn to apply the language at the same time that you're actually learning the language. It's kind of like it's a it's a whole foreign thing, and it's it's a lot to absorb, and the the pressure is huge because you know it, you're two flights away from being washed at any one time, and you have to absorb what you learned today, put it aside because tomorrow is another day, and you have to learn even more tomorrow than what you knew today. Is that a similar kind of experience that uh, that you had in terms of your your pilot training? Was this on the T thirty eight after the DA twenty? So after the DA-20 and I went back to Columbus, it was the T-6 at first. So okay. tandem seats, pulls like six Gs, flies 300 knots, prop airplane. Mm. Super fun airplane to fly. And it's like the PC-9, the Pelosi's PC-9 similar to that. Yeah, 
Exactly. And then if you got selected to go on the jet track or the jet, uh, the fighter bomber track, then you went on to fly the T-38 um, from there. So that was about halfway through. But that is a very good description of what it's like. You are, you're just trying to learn what the terms mean. You're learning definitions. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're trying to apply those while you're flying. And then you have the physical aspect of learning left hand, right hand, and all this like coordination. Mm. It's just, it. I feel like it involves so many parts of your brain <laughs> that at first it can be very overwhelming. Yeah, it is in, indeed overwhelming. In fact, I was uh, I was walking on the beach a, a couple of hours ago. Think I, also in the public speaking game, which which we'll we'll get to shortly. And I was developing a new talk, and I was thinking back to my pilot training at this kind of point in time. A little bit further on, you finished with the the formation phase, and you're in the low level navigation phase. And I went through. I won't go the details now, but I went through a, an experience which was the worst experience I've had in a in a in an aircraft. And I uh, induced it myself, and I, I stuffed up this low level maneuver, which was completely unplanned and unprofessional, and shouldn't have been done in the first place. But nevertheless, I was thinking through this process and this and that I was brought back to that time in my life and it is such a it's a you know it's good that you're 19 20 21 when you go through that kind of phase because I don't think you would hack it when you're 40 because it's just too much to learn and assimilate and 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 the output required of you at the same time as you're learning it it's incredible I've thought that so many times that I going through college and flight training, I felt like I could memorize things pretty quickly and pretty easily. Like I, I learned fast, even though it was still so much. And now just trying to memorize like my keynote speech and I'm like my brain, I can feel like the, it is full to the brim. Like there's no yeah. more space. I can read the same thing 10 times and I mess it up every single time. And I'm just like, why am I so bad at this now? I used to be so good at this, but for sure it's definitely a good thing to go through when you're young and have a lot of energy. <laughs> well, I'm going to recommend a great book to you, which I'm busy with right now, halfway through. Cal Newport's great work called Deep Work. I don't know if you've come across it, but it talks about these things, and it's, it's actually to do with uh, the way the world is right now where we get distracted so easily. We just quickly check an email, get an instant message, and, and look up something on the Internet rather than having this meaningful, uninterrupted time of work, which is what we actually went through. When we were going through the pilot training course, you had these chunks of time where you sat down, you didn't have messages buzzing all the time and all this distraction. You actually could focus. And that's possibly why we could retain the information then and not so much at the moment. Great book. Cal Newport, Deep Work. Recommend it. It sounds like I could have some takeaways from that. I'm notorious for working on like 12 things at the same time, which is definitely yeah. not the best way to do it. <laughs> yeah, me too. Okay, so you, you finished the... How did it go in the course? By the end, are, are you feature in the top, in the middle, in the bottom. Where did you kind of feature in your course? So it, it, it went well. I I had some luck, I think, that I took to it naturally. I didn't have to deal with any air sickness, which I know a lot of people did, and that could be really tough. And like mm-hmm. I said, I was kind of good at memorizing things. So I caught up. It was that initial part that was really difficult. As we got further in, I definitely was in the top part of the class. And then halfway through, they were like, do you want to fly a fighter bomber or do you want to fly a heavy aircraft? And you get to kind of like raise your hand and, and pick. Then they take those names, kind of similar how to, to how they did an ROTC, and they look at the number of spots they have and how you how you've performed so far. You have to be in the top fifty percent of your class to even have the option to go the fighter bomber track, which goes to T thirty eights. And we had seven of us out of a class of twenty five that went down the fighter bomber path, and I wanted to do that, so I volunteered and I was doing well enough in the class to get picked. And then the next six months, 
you're kind of separated from the other part of your class. So it's really that core group of seven of mm. you that are competing against each other for any fighter or bomber aircraft that are going to be available at graduation. And okay. at that time, each class was getting anywhere from one to maybe three fighter jets that were available. So it was not a lot. So we knew that whole six-month period that probably half of us were not going to go on to fly fighters. And so we were all good friends and helped each mm. other, but there was always underlying competition for sure because you knew <laughs> sure. there weren't enough to go around. This is where it's going to get divided, and I'm going to make sure I'm in the top of this division. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, so uh, what was your top pick? F-16s were my first choice, and I went back and forth for a long time between mm. the F-16 and the A-10 because I really love the mission of the A-10, close mm. air support. It's a cool airplane, and I have a funny Very story cool. related to meeting my husband, um, who is a Marine, about that. But I decided I wanted something fast, something maneuverable, something that had an afterburner. I, I had seen those two jets take off in AB. That was kind of the thing that first drew me mm. to getting into that path. And I put F-16s first. And my class had one F-16 and one F-15E Strike Eagle available. And the guy in T-38s with me that ended up being first in the class his dad had been a Wizzo, so like a navigator in the back seat of a Strike Eagle, and he wanted more than anything to fly a Strike Eagle as the pilot. It just he grew up around okay. it. it. That's what he wanted so bad, and there was one available, so he got that. And then I was second and put F-16s first, and there was an F-16 available, so we both got our first choices. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, that does also doesn't work out very well. I mean, obviously, for the first two, it worked out well. But uh, everyone else and the other 20-odd people in your class that maybe some would have chosen. But okay, so great. So you got your first choice and, uh, and you ended up spending the remainder of your career on the F-16. Is that right? Exactly. I think if I had not left active duty now, there would have been a high potential of switching over to the F-35. A lot of F-16 pilots were making that leap. And I think I would have had the opportunity to do that. But I kind of am leaving right at that point, and I was happy to fly the F-16 the entire time. It's a really capable airplane, and it's amazing mm. to have dual role, do air-to-air and air-to-ground. And then the Thunderbirds is just such a completely different mission sure. than the tactical mission, and I really loved that. So I've, I'm very thankful for all the opportunities that I got in the 13 years that I was on active duty. Okay. Well, I mean, I want to just touch on a few things just to kind of summarize that part of your career as well before we sort of get into more specific of the, uh, the Thunderbird stuff. Now, I mean, F-16, as you mentioned, super capable. But if you're in the military in the United States, you just have to make peace with the fact that you're going to get sent places you don't necessarily want to go. I mean, I know there's that point of you want to prove to yourself and to others that you're good enough and you can, you can, you can, you know, make a, make a good show of yourself in active duty. However, it's real and uh, like we know what's going on in ukraine right now it's real and uh, and there's a, a terrible side to it as well but you obviously signed up knowing that this was coming and and you you went and did a couple of tours on the f-16 yeah exactly there's some amazing places you get to go and there's some pretty terrible places that you get to go um, my first assignment after i spent a year in arizona learning to fly the f-16 specifically this is after mississippi um, mm. was misawa japan which is way up on the northern end of the main island of Honshu. Um, it's about nine hours from Tokyo by car, so it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. Um, it's a small city, I think about 30,000 people. Um, but yeah, that, that was my first uh, exposure to the CAF, which is the Combat Air Forces, and I was flying a gray jet, and we had 
a very complicated mission there based on just where we were geographically mm. located. But that squadron was so good at what they did. It, there was so much to learn. It was incredible. When I decided I wanted to be a fighter pilot, I did not realize how in-depth the technical part of it is with mm. the weaponeering and the systems. <clears throat> it goes so far beyond the flying, the left hand, right hand. That becomes yep. just something you do without thinking about it. Mm. Well, I mean, this is something I also wanted to just touch on a little bit is that, you know, we talk about these beautiful things like watching those two uh, F-15s get airborne with the, the afterburners full glow and just admiring the, the lines of a F-16 and the performance and, you know, the capability of it. But you are a platform. You're going to go and use this thing as a platform. And just moving this thing, pointing it around in the sky is the most, I mean, that's just standing up. And now that you can stand, now you need to figure out how to juggle three balls and still find where you're going and navigate and, you know, there's targets out there, etc. So maybe just share a little bit. I, I, I was not in the fighter line, so, I, you know, I don't have any, any uh, experience in weapon systems, etc. other than my friends that went through that line. But, I mean, just, just explain just how, how basic the flying part of it would become in order to use the platform as a, basically, the your whole aircraft is your weapon and you have to use it appropriately. Uh, yeah, there's just so much going on when you're... So when I was in Afghanistan, that was close air support, you know, supporting all the guys on the ground. And you would just be holding in a wheel up there, flying a big circle. And the jet does have autopilot, but it's not It's not like airlines autopilot. It holds altitude, essentially. Um, but you have so much going on. You have a targeting pod, and you're trying to track whatever target that you're talking on the radio to the guys on the ground about. And it could be a thing that's moving. It could be a truck that's moving. And there could be clouds. There could be scattered clouds. So your targeting pod keeps biting off on a cloud and you have to manually keep trying to retract the, the truck. And that's like full attention right there. Mm. Meanwhile, you have someone on the ground who could be taking fire at the time trying to tell you coordinates and describe a target. And you're trying to write that down with literally a pencil on a piece of paper that's strapped to your leg. And, oh, this could all be at night. And yep. you could have MVGs, and you're looking underneath the MVGs to right, and then you're looking back through the MVGs to like look outside and at your mm. displays. And the flying part of it, you would try to just set the throttle where you could leave it, and your airspeed would be in something that was okay. And then, mm. I mean, there were so many times when I would be riding, and the autopilot's not that good, so the jet would be in a wheel, and it would start to roll up a little bit more than I wanted, or and I would literally just hit the stick with my elbow to to get it back like close enough to what I wanted because I was writing so much was going on. So mm. the flying just becomes a periphery mm. that you don't really worry about until unless something A goes very wrong yeah. or B it's time to physically do an attack that involves diving down towards the ground or something like that more dynamic. But the mm. majority of the time it doesn't involve that and you're just cruising around in circles. And, and also, I mean, the fact is that you, you would have this communication with the ground, you know, you're supporting people, you'd have communication with another aircraft, you know, a wingman, you'd also have communication with air traffic control, you know, that's just three different frequencies that you're on right there. <laughs> and never mind, you're writing, you're looking, you're scanning, you're reading, there's this instrument that I mean, there's so much going on. And it's so much more than the beautiful getting airborne, which we love. And it is lovely seeing those afterburners, but it's a real complex job. And the goal here is not to put people off, but to really put people into the perspective that, 
you know, you think it's hard to get into pilot's course, well, wait till you get your wings, you know, you think it's hard to become a fighter pilot, well, wait till you actually have to go out and combat and, and use the skills that you've been spent four or five years gathering at a training school. Yeah, there's a reason it's hard because you're going to need all of those skills to do the actual mission. Yeah. Okay, well, I mean, I wanted to move on to, so at what point in your career now, you you did a, a tour in Japan now, at what point in your career are you even thinking about Thunderbirds? I mean, firstly, people don't just think about these things, especially when you're out there in your first tour and you're actually, you know, you, you, you're gaining the skills in order to survive, in order to do a good job. But uh, does, it, does it come across your radar? Do people reach out to you? Or how does that sort of first taste with Thunderbirds sort of come across your radar? It wasn't something that I had considered even applying for for most of my career i had a couple people ask me if it was something i ever wanted to do just casually in conversation and i'd always been like oh i don't i don't know i don't know if i'm a good enough pilot to do that or i'm at the time i didn't have enough hours yet so i was like oh i'm not even qualified to apply yet and i wasn't something i serious seriously considered and then my next assignment after japan was in fort worth texas and that's where i got to deploy to afghanistan um, I, it was a really transformative assignment for me. I think a lot of fighter pilots find that that second assignment where you've been flying for four to six years. You start to get your feet under yourself. You become an instructor pilot, which gives you a lot mm-hmm. of confidence. I started volunteering for a lot of things. Um, I got the opportunity to go to Poland and fly mm-hmm. their F-16s and uh, help instruct their pilots, um, which was pretty amazing. And oh. all of those things just gave me more confidence in my abilities in the aircraft. And I had actually already gotten my follow-on assignment after Texas to go to the training base where they train new F-16 pilots. And I was just a few months from heading over there and leaving Texas. And the last email came across my desk saying that they were hiring the new Thunderbirds. And the deadline for the application package was just a few days away. I had totally ignored or deleted or missed the first couple emails about it because I just, I wasn't focused on it. It wasn't something I was seeking out. And then the last one came across and for whatever reason, I opened that one and actually read the whole thing. And I was like, I meet the requirements for this. This could be cool. I feel like I am good enough to apply and maybe get hired. And that same day I went to my boss and I was like, I would like to apply for this. What do you think? And he was all for it, which was amazing Mm. and helped me scramble through gathering up the application (laughs) package in just a few days. You needed letters from like generals and Mm. you had to go get your picture taken and you had to write a statement about why you wanted to be on the team. There was just so much to get done in just a couple days. Um, But we submitted it and I ended up interviewing and then eventually getting hired for the next season. Okay, well, well, way too fast there. I'm going to slow you down, Michelle. <laughs> okay, so you, 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 I mean, in your situation, which is uh, obviously everyone who's flying F-16s in the same position, but you can take a, a range of uh, lines where you're coming from, different squadrons you're operating at, and you can still apply. I mean, if you're a fast jet pilot, you can apply to the Thunderbirds, even though you're not flying F-16s. But you're in the fortunate position to be very comfortable. Does that make any difference? I mean, is there a fly-off? Is there some kind of a, a skill assessment in the aircraft, or is it just the interview stuff? So this is a good question because when I applied and for many years leading up to me applying and actually the next couple of years, there was no flying tryout. The oh, fact wow. that you had a minimum of 750 hours in a fighter aircraft and then we would do like what we call a bro check. Like p- people would reach out to people that were currently <laughs> flying with you and ask how Very you important. Like, very, very important. Do you want to know? <laughs> yeah, that's probably the best source of information. Yeah. Um, 
but there was no physical flying tryout. And so my last year on the team, we decided to actually bring the flying tryout back. There had been one for a while, but had been gone for quite some time. We decided to add it back into the interview process. And it was actually tough because it was a big logistical lift for our team and our maintenance to provide all of these flying lines for Mm. applicants to go out because the applications are coming in the middle of our show season. And we are gone all the time. We would be home in Las Vegas at Nellis two days a week. And it was just tough to generate all these flights for applicants. So I think that Mm. was one of the reasons it kind of stopped being a thing. Um, But it's back now. And it was very interesting to see how people did, who ended up getting hired. Uh, It's not as simple as you might imagine. It's not just like, oh, that person crushed it. They're hired. There's so much more that goes into it. Sure. Are we, are we going to dive into it? And maybe we'll, let's just carry on a little bit longer on this while we're here. Uh, I mean, we obviously, we have the fly-offs. Uh, our school, the Silver Falcons, is based at the Central Flying School, the basic training and the instructor training is all at the one unit. It is the PC-7, which is just a smaller version, smaller in power and performance version of, uh, of the T-6 that you flew. And, uh, and that's how we operated for the, it's a five-ship team. But uh, but people come from helicopter transport and fighters and everyone is eligible. And uh, if you're, you have to be a flying instructor, you have to be a certain category flying instructor, but then the fly-off is critical in terms of just understanding the, the finesse of operating the aircraft, the turboprop, the lots of yaw moment, et cetera, the spinning propeller, bumping wings, not such a good thing. So uh, there was just that kind of safety factor that we, we'd put in. But I'm curious what you saw in the difference of either when you were hired or the intake after you that didn't do a fly-off as well and versus what you saw when you were involved in, in the fly-off training. Did you see any any bits and pieces that, besides the logistical nightmare part, but the actual seeing people flying off and uh, qualifying themselves, as it were, was there any, was it better? Was there better screening? Did you make better decisions? I think so. I mean, that team is getting certified this week by the four-star general to start their, their show season. Um, but... From what I've been seeing, their training season has been going really well. We made a whole bunch of changes. The uh, Adding the flying trial was just one of them. But they seem to be doing really well, and I'm excited to see them start their show season. But what it, no one did well, right? Like, by our normal standards, no one can just jump in the jet, even sure. the people that were yeah. already flying an F-16, and just fly a loop or a roll in close formation. Like, it just takes practice. So you aren't expecting anyone to nail it, but... We did provide them a full GoPro video of the entire demo beforehand, as well as the 3D Oculus headset. So they could literally sit from their living room, wherever they were previously stationed, while they were waiting to come out and do their flying tryout, and ride along for the whole demo. So they could see the references, they could hear all the comm that's coming from the boss on the radio, and Mm. from the solos from myself and Six. And so they would know kind of just the pacing. It was just such a great tool. So we gave them all in advance. And then we told them a little bit what to expect. And then we wanted them to run the comm on the ground to respond appropriately to different radio calls that Thunderbird 1 is making. And that's That's a a lot of information. So first it gave us a huge clue on who spent time preparing and Mm. who didn't. Like it was very mm. obvious. The people that just knew what to say when because they had listened to it 30 times versus <laughs> the person that had watched it once or twice. It was yeah. very obvious. And we all we knew that all of them were going to feel like they were behind the aircraft. Like 
they had the helmet fire, as you'd say. Yeah. They're just <laughs> struggling to keep up because it's so much new stuff. But it was really to kind of assess their attitudes under that stress and if they just shut down or they kept pushing forward. And then the flying portion, you really saw how aggressive people were or weren't. Mm. Like how much they fought to try to stay in formation, even though they're terrible at it. Or <laughs> if they did something scary, right? Like if they yeah, just yeah. put their lift vector on the other aircraft and like pulled to try to get back in formation and the person in the back seat, uh, one of us, if they had to take the aircraft from them. Mm. Or if they kind of just like worked their way and slowly throughout the flight. It just told you so much about people's styles and mm. personalities and willingness to put in the time and the work. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, what you said now. I mean, lots of lots of good things to talk about. But the first thing is, is that preparation. I can remember going for my uh, Cathay Pacific interview. Well, I don't know how long ago now. A long, long time ago. And that preparation. They give you those sort of printouts back in the day. You printed things, and and it told you you're going to be in a, a Boeing seven four seven classic, a two hundred. Uh, you're going to have this profile. It's the takeoff. You're going to climb out, and. and you just flew on Microsoft Flight Simulator at the time and you just had to get familiar with the pace and the speed and what to look for and when to call things and understand the, you know, the, the takeoff profiles and the, the second segment climb, etc. And to create that into a formation display team's orientation and selection process, that is just fantastic. I would love to just watch that and sit with the Oculus myself just right now and just uh, experience it because it must be incredible. Yeah, I, the funny thing is the Oculus makes me motion sick, which is hilarious. <laughs> I've never gotten motion sick flying the jet. But something uh, about the Oculus, I'm just like, whew. But it uh, is such a good training tool. Okay, well, I mean, uh, speaking of that motion sickness, you know, these Level D simulators, that they, you know, we got an Airbus 340 simulator, the South African Airways. The big trick there was on the ground. You have to be super, super careful when you're taxiing on the ground because that simulator can't really keep up with those little bits of your movement. And people get sick in the simulators because this thing's got such erratic movement. And perhaps it's a similar thing you're experiencing, particularly this kind of side-to-side movement, which really unnerves you. Yeah, I think I think all the, the simulations of things are always worse than the actual thing, like us going in the centrifuge to simulate g-forces before you mm. experience them in the jet the centrifuge is a torture device that's like the worst <laughs> worst thing ever but yeah it's similar it's just your inner ear is really confused so what the it's, heck is going it, on and it makes you feel disoriented sure yeah okay so um did you get to sit in the back seat i mean okay before we get before you answer that every year or it's every year that the team replaces and is it one two three how many people change what's the sort of frequency of of freshening up the team so every winter training season, half of the Delta, which the Delta is the six jets that you see in a show, half of the Delta is new. So okay. three of the six pilots will be new every winter. And the three that are finishing up their first year are now the instructors for those, the new people coming in. Okay. So in your second year, you're the instructor for the new person. Exactly. Okay. So it's, it's a fast-moving ball game, and a lot of responsibility falls on the second year instructors, even though they've only been doing the job for a year, which really <laughs> isn't that long. Yes, sure. Okay, and then the leader, is that a longer tour than uh, than just a regular pilot? Or um, you did a three-year tour, is that right? Yeah, so normally it's two years for everyone, including Thunderbird 1, or we refer to him as the boss. Okay. Um, but with COVID in 2020, we most of our shows got canceled. So we did some city flyovers instead, which mm-hmm. we can talk about if you want later. But we ended up doing about, I think, six show sites that season. And normally we would do between 35 and 40. 
And we ran into all kinds of logistical issues. There was the first issue we couldn't bring out the new people to interview them to try yep. to hire them because the Air Force was on a stop movement. Like, no one could <laughs> yeah. travel for anything. So mm. we're like, do we do Zoom interviews? Like, <laughs> what, was that enough? Is that you get someone's personality through a Zoom interview? Probably not. Not the same as hanging out with them for a whole weekend. That was kind of yep. the first obstacle. We could have overcome that for sure. Mm. But then, as we realized the show season was going to be as impacted as it was, because no one knew that the pandemic was going to be as big of a deal as it ended up being, mm. um, we didn't feel like everyone who was on their first year was getting enough experience with only six show sites to become those instructors and have, they didn't have enough depth of experience to teach the new team. And it would have been putting the whole team at a lot of risk for something bad to happen if we had just taken all the experience at the end of the two year assignment. So we all stayed for three years. Okay. All right. But, but in a typical program, it would be, uh, you know, six, five, and four are the new people, and one, two, and three are the senior people. And then the next year, these are replaced, and it's uh, six, five, and four become one, two, and three. And every year, there's a new three, a new three, a new three. So you usually stay with your same number. The, okay. It, it's, it's, this gets complicated. So Thunderbird One will be the boss the entire time. Sure. Uh, usually, the wingman on the left and right wing. And then number four in the slot, who flies right below the boss, so the diamond, they would usually maintain their same number for the entire two years. The solos, you always come in as number six, the opposing solo, and then you, say, graduate to number five, the lead solo, your second year. So the solos will always change numbers. That's normal. But one of the other changes we made while I was on the team is... Realizing that number four is the one looking forward and the one that can really help train a new Thunderbird one because they can see what's going on in front of the formation. Okay. And so we always wanted number four to be an experienced person, a second year person, instead of hiring a new four. So now they're looking at moving. They will hire a new wingman, and the second year that wingman whose experience will move into the number four spot. So that is a just change this year. So it gets complicated (laughs) with numbers and who goes where and everything. But the whole takeaway is that we're trying to put the people with experience, the instructors, in the most advantageous spot in the Delta. And it's it's good to hear that even a, a team like the Thunderbirds is continually trying to reinvent themselves and do things better. And, you know, every every season try and improve in the season before and try and make things just that little bit easier and better and, and ultimately uh, a beautiful display. But so you started at number six on the left wing and then you moved to number five also on the left wing. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, exactly. Okay, so, we keep the same side Yeah. for simplicity's sake of flying on the left wing when you're not off the source, when you're the outrigger versus flying on the right. It's very different. So yeah. rather than adding that to the list of things we need to relearn, Uh, during a training season we just the number moves sides instead of the person moving sides okay well i was number three also in the left wing and uh and we can talk about the the left versus right you know we we this is one of those sort of rivalry things the left is definitely harder i mean it's just a fact i'm not really sure exactly why but there is this thing to do with there's a lot of like going down when you're rolling to the left you're always the one going down and there's a bit of negative and it's a bit of like the bigger circle etc but but did you have that rivalry the chirping you know with the, with the beers afterwards about left versus right oh oh definitely i think when i joined the team everyone 
kind of agreed that the left solo had the hardest job during delta rolls because you're on the inside and you're mm. two jets removed from the source so you have to roll left while pushing on the stick which is the weirdest <laughs> counterintuitive weird. thing ever and there's a bunch of rudder involved as well um and then we, with having the experienced team with people staying for three years, that gave us some flexibility for people to kind of try flying on different wings so that we would okay. have the ability if someone broke, like if their jet broke and they didn't take off maintenance-wise or if they got airborne, something was wrong, they had to go back and land or if they were sick, that we would have the ability for number four to swap in to either side to make a symmetric formation of five mm. aircraft without okay. a slot. Um, so number four kind of got to try out rolling on both wings so that he could be ambidextrous, I guess. And, and it was confirmed that left is harder. Yeah. So he, he did say left was harder, but he's like, it's not as hard as I thought it would be. I'm like, okay, well, now let's put another aircraft between you and the boss. That makes it <laughs> exponentially harder. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, that's cool. Okay. So we kind of got a bit uh, sidetracked into the, the weeds of this thing, but let's go back to the training then. So you, you selected and, uh, and, and then the training camp starts. How long is this training camp? Is this like a, a three-month winter before the air show summer season starts? Yeah, essentially. So I started flying with the team as they were finishing up their show season, so the very beginning of November. And February, we flew over the Super Bowl. No pressure there. Fantastic. <laughs> and then I think in March, we started our first air shows. Okay. And so the Super Bowl is one of those just sort of flyovers. It is, yeah. But I mean, it's a big event on the TV, but, but you're not doing a full display it, because there's limited, I mean, you have a stadium, et cetera. Exactly. It's, it's a fly pass rather yeah, so, than a display. The flying portion is pretty straightforward. The timing is very high pressure, right? You don't want to be on national television yeah. missing the last note of the national anthem being earlier. <laughs> and then the the formation is under a microscope. The jumbotron is airborne, or the uh, the blimp's airborne, and it's all on the jumbotron, and the whole thing's recorded. So any deviations are everyone's seeing. <laughs> yeah, sorry, what is the jumbotron? Like the giant TV screens that are in the stadium. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah. all right. Yeah, so they're watching you. Plays during the game, so the formation's <laughs> on there, and they're playing yeah. the same thing on everyone's TV and millions of households. Yeah, uh, it's, I mean the pressure's on there. You got to deliver. But so that's your first public display was the was the Super Bowl. It was oh. yes, that was a little stressful. <laughs> yeah, I mean the, that first display doesn't matter how badly or, or good it goes. It feels good to just. To get through it. One of those things that you really appreciate, really enjoyed, but also it's good to, to bank it and move on and now I can focus on the, on the other, you know, I remember that first display, it was hot and high, 5,000 feet elevation, 35 degrees Celsius, bumpy, yeah, it was terrible and, uh, and it was not a good display, but it felt like, uh, it felt to me like, well, we got through it, we're still in one piece, it wasn't terrible. But the outgoing leader of the team at the time, the, the previous leader who, who was there the season before, he was in the, in, the, in the audience and he said, well, you know, good show, guys, but I can see it's a new team. <laughs> so if you know, you know, but uh, if to, the, to the watching public, maybe they wouldn't have noticed things. Yeah, I'm always amazed the things that people don't notice if they've never seen the team before or they're just a casual observer, like a jet missing. Sometimes mm. they won't even notice the jet missing, which I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> But then you have, you know, the alumni, probably the harshest mm. critics, and they yeah. miss everything. And then they're always like, well, we did it like this. And that's yeah. that's the most stressful show of the year is the show you fly for the alumni at the end of the season. 
Oh, is that then your, your home base? Or is it a, is like a home base celebration and all f- former Thunderbirds are there watching? Okay, so you have that exactly. every year. So, uh, yeah, so like this year, Nellis usually will host a big air show open to the public every other year. So they will combine it with that. This past year was an off year for Nellis's air show. So we had like our own private show that we put on for just friends and family, which included all the alumni. And okay. it's... It's a celebration because it's the end of show season. It's exciting, mm. and our families are excited. But then it's also really stressful because you have the <laughs> harshest critics all watching yeah. you. Yeah, but well, we uh, we have these celebrations only every five years, where uh, all the former team members get together, and there's a whole weekend of golf and dinner and everything. And then obviously the current team at the time. So not every team gets to do this, but every five years the team has to give a display to all the past members. So do you have this end of show season for the alumni, sort of in lieu of a birthday? You just do it then. Was there a birthday celebration too every year? No, we just kind of do that every year, and not all the alumni are able to make it every year. You definitely have the repeat people mm. that come every single time that are, you know are are the regulars i guess uh but yeah it's it's a cool thing we do and it, it's cool to keep those relationships alive when you look out at the audience and you have you know i'm a current team member sitting there and you have people that were on the team in the 60s and sure. it's just so different their experience versus ours yeah yeah it is amazing and it's a lovely club to be part of I saw a bit of the highlights reel of, of John Foley's and, uh, you know, he was talking on stage with his helmet saying, "This I can't remember the numbers, but this re- represents the 1% of the 1% of the 1%. And I remember at the time when I was in the Silver Falcons doing very cursory sums, and I'll butcher it now, but just a case of how many military display teams are there in the world. And on average, there are about six pilots. So if you divide the number of teams and then divide the number of people in the world, you know, we won in a billion kind of thing. It really felt like you were separating yourself out to, like, as John puts it, the 1% of the 1%. Absolutely. It's an elite club. And it's cool because you just have these natural relationships with the other teams, too. So mm-hmm. I did an interview with John, with Gucci, just a few weeks ago. And it just aired, I think, last week. Um, and it was so cool to talk to another demo team solo. Like, we just had so many common things to talk about, even though it's, you know, the rivalry of the Blue Angels versus the Thunderbirds. Um, but, you know, the Red Arrows or whoever it is, it's you all just get it, and you've all been in cer- similar circumstances. Yeah, and it is a lovely club to be part of. Uh, was it before your time, or did, uh, did you take part when the Red Arrows came across and they did their tour of the North America? So Huntington Beach, California, in 2019, we did the combined formation with them, where oh, it was us and them, uh, in trail, and that was cool. I still have that picture saved. It's one of my favorites. That's amazing. Well, my sister was uh, an airline pilot with Virgin Australia, and she was on a night stop there, and she was on Huntington Beach watching you. So uh, shout out to Nicola there, supporting you guys from the beachfront. <laughs> uh, awesome. It was an amazing time. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's such a fun show to fly. It's beautiful out there. And then, uh, um, you know, your relationships with, uh, obviously, the Blue Angel we've talking about. What about the, the Snowbirds? Yeah, so we have a great relationship with the Snowbirds as well. I think the, the two teams' relationships with the Blue Angels have really developed over the last few years because we've purposely done all this joint training. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've been not just running into them at shows, because that actually doesn't happen very often, but spending, you know, a whole week or longer out in El Centro, California, where they do their winter training, training with them, riding each other's back seats. Oh, and wow. we, 
we just all got to know each other really well. So we know the other pilots well. We have their numbers. You can text them and ask them questions. Mm. We've bounced ideas, mm. shared best practices. The Snowbirds, we didn't get to do that as much, especially with the pandemic and the border sure. being closed for so long. Um, but we have a great relationship with them as well. And especially the first season, we ran into them at a bunch of air shows in 2019. And it was they're such a fun group to hang out with. I... This is gonna sound really stereotypical, but they're all just <laughs> super nice and like right, Canada. Uh, I'm from northern Wisconsin, which is practically Canada. Yeah. So I was like, oh, my people, like this is yeah. great. And my first year on the team, um, Sarah Dolaire was flying for them. So she, they also had a female pilot and we just hit it off and we're still really good friends and we've been trying to figure out when we can get together and the borders opening and all of that. Mm. So uh, they're great as well. Well, that's nice. I mean, you, so you brought up this topic. I wanted to get to it. I mean, we talk about the one percent of the one percent of the one percent. Well, then you can add another of the one percent where you are. You're the fifth lady in the Thunderbirds, and certainly globally, there aren't many. And that's just a, a legacy of how the world has been. This sort of uh, patriarchy, and you know, not being able to to join the military as a pilot. So there is a bit of a legacy there, and certainly things are changing. What does it feel like to sort of represent a being? Uh, the face of aviation in the United States Air Force, because certainly that's what the demonstration team's there for, to garner support from the public and show people what, what are capable of. But obviously, as a, as a lady in the team, you probably get even more celebration being, look, and, and ladies are also part of this too, so uh, apply. What is that like being taking on that mantle? So I, it's kind of two different sides of it. So on one front, it was amazing because I could see the impact that I was having and I got all of these cool opportunities that came up that allowed me to really inspire people, which was just so rewarding. I love that part of the job. And then on the other hand, it's a lot of responsibility. You're <laughs> Don't stuff it up. Under a microscope. <laughs> like any mistakes you make, people are judging more than they would anyone else and it'll be talked about longer than it would be if it was anyone else. And you are the victim of public opinion, uh, which normally was not, you weren't normally a victim. It was normally great. But any weird things, deviations you make, well, the internet is a brutal place. And mm. <laughs> you would rapidly see that. Uh, my husband would tell me I should not read the comments on social media, but I would. <laughs> and there are some jerks out there for sure. So overall, it was great. But there was a little bit of, that extra stress of feeling like I could not mess up, I could not make a misstep while I was in that position. Sure. Now, I mean, it's one of those sort of, you get to these high altitudes, like tallest tree, you get the wind, you know, the air's rarefied up there, so there's good and bad that goes with it. But, um, I mean, we first connected uh, probably more than a year ago, and you weren't able to, to really sort of have an official position as a Thunderbirds and, and do these kind of interviews. Well, maybe you, you were able to, but you had to be selective with, with where you go. But, you know, in terms of your personal life, you are a Thunderbird, but you're also Michelle, and we'll get to Mace in a minute. And uh, and kind of marrying these two, where you, did the Air Force tell you, you have to do this interview now, don't do that, you're gonna speak here, and were you kind of forced, or did you have a little bit of autonomy in kind of celebrating the uniqueness of being you, even though you are an Air Force display pilot? A little bit of both. There were definitely the things that, the Thunderbirds are a unique squadron in the Air Force, and the Air Force level, like higher headquarters, realizes 
the reach and the impact that we have. And so a lot of things would come down from them as far as engagements, different things that we would do. And we're unique that we have an entire public affairs team that's part of our team. So it, there's you know several people that that is their job, just Thunderbird Public Affairs. And there's a lot that goes into public opinion and the Thunderbird brand and the years of legacy that go behind it. And so they don't want that to be tarnished by one poor interview or mm. misspoken comment or whatever it is. And I totally understand that. So it was uh, mostly directed from above or from at least the squadron level. But our public affairs officer was just another captain or another major that you are friends with as well. So you can have open conversations about this makes me uncomfortable or this is a great opportunity. Someone reached out to me on Instagram and had like offered up this great interview opportunity, like let's do it. And they would, you know, usually be very open to that and on board. So it was a little bit of both. I would just get so many requests by the third year, especially with social media, like my social media growing so much, I would get so many requests that time-wise I just couldn't do all of them. And they want to know, you know, when when you're an active team member, they want to know who you're going out and representing to. So everything would get run through them, which which I totally understand. It's great now to be able to, you know, mm. choose what I do and don't do and have the time to be what a Monday morning at my home office doing an interview. <laughs> I just wouldn't be able to do that normally. Um, sure. So it's great. But the outreach that came from being on the team and some of the media opportunities that I got especially were were pretty amazing. I got to be on the Kelly Clarkson show, which was such a cool experience or like national news level media mm. stuff. And it, it was just good. really cool. Well, I'll come to sort of your, your new position now, you know, your, your new life and uh, your pivot. But uh, but just on that point, I mean, you, you joined the team at a time where, uh, I mean, there was no iPhone when I was in the team. And uh, just you've got so many platforms to be able to share the great message, which really is the point of the team in the first place to get the good message out there. And also put a name and a face as well. You know, it's not just the fact that a jet flies over in a great formation, but who's in that jet? We often spoke about the fact that the people come to see the uniform, which they do. But the human story behind is is where the Instagram and these kind of uh, platforms allow you to connect with people. And certainly that was something that you did quite well and you, you've built up quite a, a following doing it. Was that something that you enjoyed doing or did it just kind of build, did, I mean, did this thing build in the background uh, despite your intention or was this an active pursuit that you went down? Uh, initially, it wasn't intentional. Um, we, When I joined the team, we kind of started to be able to use GoPros a little bit more. The technology just got a lot better. The mounts got a lot better. And we use those for debrief as well. They're such a good tool for that. Um, but it was also a great public affairs outreach to be able to share that stuff. So I just started sharing it occasionally. And over time, pe- people just loved it. Like the comments and the feedback were just so good. It was garnering a lot of attention. So I started to, you know, put all that stuff out there. And then it was just a gradual progression. I got better at video editing. That was one of the key <laughs> things. Was everything you see on there, I would do in my time outside of work. And it wasn't, no one else was editing it. It like our public affairs team are really good at editing video, but they are very busy with doing the stuff for the team that's official. So I did that all on my own and it took a lot of spare time for sure. And there were points where I felt a little burnt out with it, where I felt like people mm. were expecting content to come out. And I was just like, 
I've been in three different cities for different shows and three different time zones in the last three weeks, and I like just don't have the energy to do this. But for the most part, it was it became something I really enjoyed because it was a cool creative outlet to create mm-hmm. these videos and content and pair the music. And the feedback that I would get from people was incredible. I'm not just talking about like pe- random people liking, but the comments or the DMs that you would get with people telling their personal stories about Mm. being inspired by the team or inspiring their daughters because they showed them specifically my braid sticking out the back of the helmet or high schoolers who were going into Air Force ROTC and then they, you know, they check in with me three years later and they're, they found out they got a pilot slot and like, it was just, I could see the impact that I was able to have. And it was so rewarding and so cool to be able to do that. Yeah, that is good. And you make a great point on the creative outlet. I I went down a similar journey with on the LinkedIn platform. Obviously, it's not as as fancy with F-16s information, but uh, but certainly flying international airliners all over the world and lots of flights into New York as well with South African Airways. And I would just capture some of the bits and pieces. And people have a fascination with flight. You know, Leonardo got it right all those hundreds of years ago where people, once you've seen it and tasted it, you're going to forever sort of yearn for it. And it's an easy piece of media to get to a lot of people quickly because people like it and share it but it does require effort and I also got to that point where I was putting out stuff so regularly but at some point you're like shoo I'm tired but the comments and the feedback it was it was driving and it really does uh, it inspires you to carry on but to contrast the sort of regimented procedural you know non-normal operations it's checklists, it's rules, and then now you've got this creative outlet marrying a bit of color, marrying a bit of sound. It really was a, a fun way to kind of balance that regimented, strict, SOP-driven environment. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what I found, too. And one of the things I started to do, I, it wasn't intentional. I just shared what I was <laughs> doing. And, you know, fitness is a huge part of my life. And doing stuff outdoors and stuff with my family. And I just shared all of the stuff I would share on my normal personal account because that's honestly what it was. I didn't create this account separately for the Thunderbirds. I had had it since whenever I joined Instagram. I don't even know when that was. So Mm -hmm. I continued to share the personal stuff and then was just like, and I'm a Thunderbird right now. And I think people, like you said, (laughs) just love to see a real person that they could relate to, you know, Mm. like a person that's, tired on a Monday morning is drinking a bunch of coffee and is like a step parent and is navigating all of that and has hobbies and the feedback I got especially from fitness stuff Mm. which I should put out more fitness stuff because I still I worked out before this interview like it's just something I do almost every day a lot of people are reaching out saying that like those little stories those videos sharing a specific workout was motivating them when they were on the fence about, you know, getting off the couch and going and doing something, especially that was true during the pandemic. Sure. Yeah. That was a good time for, for people. And there was quite a big uh, growth in the, in sort of the, the fitness message too. I mean, a lot of people became quite famous with that kind of stuff. Um, but I want to just then grab the, the sort of the wave of stuff that you got. So was, did you, did you have like an end of contract looming and it and ended it yet to either sign on more or not? Or was it an active decision to say, I've had enough and I'm leaving? I don't know how your, your time in the Air Force ends and how you decide to leave or stay on. Yeah, so after pilot training, you incur a 10-year commitment. Okay. And mine happened to reach the end of that during the 2020 season, April okay. 2020. And... I had kind of been on the fence about staying in general 
Um, mm. there's, I like, I love flying and all the opportunities that it's given me and it's fun, but I wouldn't say I live to fly. Like I have a lot mm. of other hobbies yeah. and there was just a lot of other stuff I wanted to pursue. <laughs> There's so I much life out there. I want to get it. <laughs> I want to do it while I have the time and the energy. And I mean, a 20 year retirement is such a great thing. Like to have that security and to put in 20 years on active duty is such a commendable thing to do. But I think the the tipping point for me is I met my husband when I joined the team, when I moved to Las Vegas okay. and I mentioned I'm a stepmom, So I have a nine year old stepson. And they're very established here in Las Vegas. And my husband is a co-founder of a tech startup. Okay. And we're, we're just not going to move every three years and put his career secondary. It's, it's not going to happen. I don't want that either. Mm-hmm. And so it was, you know, a conscious decision at that point that it's time to leave active duty. And there's a lot of other stuff I want to pursue anyways. And that was, you know, kind of like the nail in the coffin that, that okay. decided that I was for sure going to do that. And it just timed out well that I finally had the option to make that decision um, with my my commitment ending. So the last year and a half on the team, I was kind of a, a free agent, I guess. Like my contract was up, but I was just finishing what the team needed the tour. for. Okay. Well, that's quite a nice position to be in. You kind of relax knowing that at the end of this, you know, I'm signing off and it's a beautiful way to end your Air Force career. Uh, again, we have something in common. We both flew on the left. My last flight in uniform in the South African Air Force was a display flight with the Silver Falcons. And not only that, but we were in formation with the South African Airways, Airbus 34600, and I was sitting on the left wing. My new boss was sitting, flying that aircraft too. It was just such a, and it was in Cape Town, my home city. It was like so many beautiful things all came together at the same time. I landed, I handed over the helmet to the guy I had already trained up, and he flew the sunset show that night. I jumped in a plane, flew back up to Johannesburg, and uh, back in the office with South African Airways the next morning kind of thing. And it was a, it was a beautiful fitting end, and it sounds like you had a, a similar end, you know, finishing off in the Thunderbirds, your last Air Force flight. Yeah, I think it was a great way to go out. And it wasn't intentional that the Thunderbirds would be the last assignment, like that this wasn't my grand plan yeah. to catapult me into all these other opportunities <laughs> that it has opened for me, because it definitely has opened doors. But it, it worked out that way, and and it, it's, it was just a great opportunity, and it was what was right for me personally and for our family. Okay, well, let's uh, just transition to the sort of the point where you're in now. I know you're into public speaking. You've been on lots of interviews, uh, TV and podcasts, and, and thanks for your time again today. But what is the journey obviously you have a great story to share uh, the motivational message is strong you know you've you've excelled in your career and you can give that back and you already have been doing that with uh, you know being on the thunderbirds but now you kind of manage your own time and you can actually go and do more actively pursuing the things you want to do specifically so what are these specific things that you're going after now yeah i mean you pretty much summarized up why i'm making this transition so what I realized is, I kind of mentioned it, like I love flying, but that was not my favorite part of being on the team. It was the coolest flying I did in my whole career, hands down, and the most sure. fun. But what really left an impact on me were those one-on-one interactions I got to have with people where I could see that something I said or seeing me in that position or whatever it was changed their life. Like to have mm. that ability to inspire people in that way is a gift it's like a rare thing that you're in a position at the right time and you get to do it and I was I wanted to continue to do it so I started to think about how and honestly 
if you had asked me a year and a half, two years ago, I probably would have told you I was going to go fly for the airlines. Like that's just, that's, <laughs> you know, the common transition and it's a great yep. lifestyle. It is. It's good. The schedule's good. It's obviously highly sought after, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized that I didn't think I would just find fulfillment in just doing that. Um, based on what I really loved about being on the team. And so a few opportunities started to pop up with people asking me to come speak at things. And I had to always say no, because I was still on <laughs> active gonna? duty and I was still doing shows. I was scheduled in allow. And also there's a bunch of weird stuff with the Air Force and doing that while you're on active duty. But I realized there was a market for it mm. and there was still a platform for it. And so I started to kind of dig into the opportunities there as I was leaving and I think people have a misconception that fighter pilots or people that they see in what they deem a successful position yeah. have some magical attribute that they don't possess. That it's like this unobtainable thing that, man, that person got lucky that they were born that smart and sure. their parents gave them this or whatever it is. But I think I can share in my story that... I struggled with imposter syndrome, which I think that term is thrown around so much right now, but I struggled with it so much, especially my first assignment. It was painful. Like that assignment sucked for me personally, even though mm. I was doing fine in the squadron. I made amazing friends and I look back on it now and I was like so grateful that I got to live in Japan for three years. But every day I felt like I was letting people down and I was failing. And mm. I went through a mind sh mindset shift when I went on to that next assignment in Texas that I mentioned was very transformative for me. And I basically got to the point where I was like, I am tired of feeling like this. Like, screw it. I'm just going to say yes to everything that, like, instinctually excites me. But then I'm like, ooh, that's scary, and I could fail. And I would, yeah. you know, I would say no to things I would, you know, not raise my hand for stuff because I was afraid and I was like, nope, we're just going to do it. So I started saying yes to everything. And while on that assignment, you know, I became an IP, I deployed, I volunteered to go to Poland and instruct in their F-16s and they hadn't had any female pilots in their Vipers yet. So that was interesting. And wow. I did all kinds of random stuff. I started running marathons, which I'd never done. It was scary, but I just committed. I'm like, I'm signing up for this race. Here we go. And I did like three of them in that one assignment. And I wow. traveled to Nepal by myself and trekked to Everest Base Camp. I was just like, we're going to do it all. It's the time. And every one of those experiences like built my confidence a little bit more. And that whole two and a half, three years leading up to seeing that email come across my desk for the Thunderbirds set me up on the track to be able to say yes to do that or having the confidence to raise my hand and be like, I want to apply to the team. Mm. And I think that a lot of people can relate to that story. Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, we could spend another three hours on imposter syndrome now. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Well, uh, I mean, you mentioned so many good things there, but, but that feeling of, uh, I don't know why they selected me. I don't know. I mean, I can see you good enough and I can see you good enough. I can see you good enough. But I don't really feel like I'm worthy in this environment. I feel like I'm the, the last pick kind of thing. And uh, even still, maybe they're doubting because that's a real thing. And it doesn't matter if you've gone to space seven times or you've invented something new in tech or wherever you are in your, your journey in life, it's real. And, a, and for a pilot and a fighter pilot and a display pilot, it's real too. It's great that you share that. It really... It allows people to just buy into the message that, okay, they are just like me. And uh, the little things that I struggle with, they struggle with. 
which is it's incredible to be able to share this yeah it and because i experienced it personally i'm so passionate about it and i just want to tell people about it and i've yeah the thunderbirds being kind of the culmination of that journey Mm-hmm. just set me up with the ability to do that and i'm like very grateful that all that timing worked out and i am having the opportunities that are coming up now and i'm super excited to get on the road <laughs> and actually leave for my very first uh speaking engagement for my company officially tomorrow morning so fantastic here we go giddy up <laughs> that's fantastic what is your call uh, you know when the show starts and you're going to run in we are flying the very underpowered pilates for the display team we had this sort of uh, ready for the run in and then that's kind of a dive into show center but what is your kind of call from the boss that we starting the show uh so you mean the actual demo yeah uh, like if you're going to do an air show and you're about to start you'll check in and everything and now everyone's ready and now you're running in what's the kind of like the kickoff uh, call that you use so, I mean, on the ground, it's really just like the first smoke check that, like, smoke on ready now, smoke off ready now, and then everyone pushes their power up and goes. Um, once we're airborne, it's kind of separate, so we don't have, like, an official a kickoff uh, that starts it all, but, I mean, there's so many different things in the script. Every year, the number two pilot gets to pick a response to the maneuver calls for the boss. Oh, uh, that's fun. So, uh, yeah, and then they respond throughout the entire demo and they get to be creative with how they respond, like the level of enthusiasm and stuff in their voice. So, you know, it's, it's been everything from, I'm trying to remember what was my first year from like, all right to yeehaw to all kinds of different things. And it's always funny to see the spin that they put on it. Um, so that's kind of unique, but. Okay. And so is it, so the boss makes a call and number two responds. Exactly. So, only specific calls uh, for maneuvers. So, you know, he'd be like, we'll be back left for whatever maneuver it is. And then number two would be like, all right. Or however he would say it, depending on, depending on his mood. You could tell a lot about how the demo was going by yes. the way that he responded. <laughs> we could also speak a lot about this right now, that our kickoff point was, uh, you know, so we're diving in, ready for the run-in, run-in, and then it'll be smoke on go. We know it's about to start because now the trail starts and now you become more visible. It's such a quiet aircraft too. So when the smoke starts trailing, then officially the actual display is starting 14 minutes odd. So smoke on go is kind of like, that's the kickoff point for us. And I just wanted to, uh, you know, to, to use that as a kickoff point for you for your talk tomorrow. Uh, is it a big audience? Uh, so it's kind of a unique setting. I'm actually going to speak at a school, and they're having me come out for two full days. So wow. it is well beyond just a 45-minute keynote, um, which is what I will normally do. Uh, mm. So I am doing a keynote for the high schoolers, a keynote for the middle schoolers, and then I'm visiting, I think, like six different classrooms to talk about sure. all different things. I'm talking about g-forces to different science classes i'm talking to the little elementary schoolers which will be you know mostly pictures and videos uh, and a little informal conversation with them i'm bringing my g-suit my helmet that's sitting back here with me Um, so two full days and i'm really looking forward to this because the best part about being on the team was interactions with the kids so kicking Mm. off my company upside down dreams is what it's called kicking that off with this audience just seems very fitting 
That sounds amazing. Yeah, and it's wow, it's it's quite an action-packed start as well. I mean, normally you do your your forty-five minute keynote and then that's it. But you've got two full days with the people. It really gets you to engage with the audience. That's the one thing I've noticed. I've been doing public speaking for about two years now, and the the Zoom is great that you can continue the conversation, but it's just not the same to as being in the room where you can see people's eyes and you can feel the energies, and you're going to have that immersive experience once more. Uh, I'm I'm looking forward to it, and I've done some Zoom just free talks for various audiences over mm. the last two years and it is very awkward to like crack a joke and all you're looking at is everyone's <laughs> screens turned off and you can't like hear what they're saying you can't yeah, tell yeah. if they have questions or something doesn't make sense so i'm excited to do this all in person for sure that's gonna be great and are you also writing a book i imagine you, you you're tracking your story at, le- at least but is has the book phase started yet or not so I wrote a kid's book manuscript during oh. the pandemic, and I'm trying to move that forward with finding an illustrator and getting it published. That is a, the children's book publishing industry is a strange nut to crack. Uh, okay. So that's going on. And then, and it's like aviation themed and the little girl who sees the Thunderbirds fly. And then I, I would like to write, you know, like a memoir style stories mm. book. Uh, I think in the next couple of years, I'm, diving headfirst into upside down dreams for now and really want to get myself established in the speaking world, get my messaging really honed in and my presentation honed in. And Mm. once that happens, then I'm going to pivot to working on a book on the side. So it's just in the, the formative phases of, of, you know, a thought right now, but hopefully it'll come to fruition in the next few years. Well, I hope so too. Upside down dreams. I'll be uh, eagerly uh, watching that space to see how it grows and develops um, we didn't get to talk about it, but Michelle, Mace, Karen, it has been amazing talking with you. Thank you so much. And if people want to reach you, whether it's just in person to say hello and thank you for the fly pass last year or to book you for a speaker or any other way, what's the best place for people to reach out and get hold of you? Yeah, so my website for Upside Down Dreams is just my call sign and my last name.com. So Mace, M-A-C-E, Curran.com. And I'm sure my name will be spelled out uh, in the notes on the show. And sure. then... Uh, also on Instagram, Mace underscore Curran is where you can find me. And I do check the messages there. I don't always get to all of them, but I at least try to <laughs> try to check all of them. So that's a great space to interact and see all the cockpit videos that we've referenced several times. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much and all the best for your preparation for your talk, your two-day immersive experience with the kids. And I hope you enlighten them and give them some wonderful things to dream about in their own lives too. Uh, thanks. I appreciate your support and thanks for your time. It's been fun. Hey, real quick, it's Alex once again. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review and a five-star rating. Also, remember to subscribe and share this content with others. All these tips and tricks help us to create a better show. Better reviews, better ratings help us get better promotion and helps us get better guests. So thank you.